Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener the most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. All right, everybody, we're back. This is episode number 73 of the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. Uh, yeah, so um, today uh, we have, let me get the right camera angle here. Um, we have someone in the studio who um, I, I respect a great deal. He has done a tremendous amount of work. Uh, to help people that have struggled with PTSD um, and specifically veterans who struggle with, with PTSD. Um, he is a psychologist and um, I, I've known him for God, maybe 10 years, maybe a little bit more, maybe Probably close yeah. To, to yeah. 18 or yeah. 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 <laughs> now I, think, yeah. I haven't been sober that long, but yeah. I, I think yeah. that was indeed the first time that we, uh, some of us do the cha-cha. Yeah, I did. I, I'm a, the hokey pokey. Yeah. Big fan of the cha-cha. Um, so we are, we are super excited to have Kelly here today. Um, we're the, my goal for today is, uh, to, to bring light on PTSD. I've got a lot of questions myself. Um, and I just want this to, to, to bring light to a topic that can be touchy, uh, for some people. It can be difficult to talk about. Um, it can be, it, it can evoke shame and there can, you know, a lots of shame can be, uh, can, can surround this topic. So my goal today is to bring it to the table and have a deep dive conversation, long format conversation. We don't have to worry about sponsors or, uh, commercial breaks. It's just us three here talking about a, a, Knowledge. a topic that is very, very important. So without further ado, um, Kelly Piers, we are so grateful that you are here. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you are, what you do, uh, and, and let's, let's dive on in. Thank you. Well, it, it's a pleasure to be here, an honor to be back in Jackson. Uh, I'm a psychologist at the uh, Alexandria VA Medical Center in Alexandria, Louisiana. Been there for 16 years. Um, prior to that, was in private practice for about 12 or 13 years, doing a lot of trauma work. Um, um, absolutely, positively love working at VA. It's. Uh, I was telling someone this morning uh, who's in medical school and looking at residency and I was plugging, man, VA is a great place to work. Uh, I don't have to worry about hiring or firing and billing and right. all those things you do in private practice sorts of things. And uh, I'm blessed with the opportunity to go in at 7.30, leave at 4. Um, and what that does is it frees up energy to treat our veterans. Um, uh, another another part of it was is I was in part of a – in, in VA terms, uh, some PTSD clinics are called PCT, PTSD Clinical Team. So there's a team of people, nurse practitioners, psychiatric nurse practitioner, nurse, social worker, psychologist, clerks, that that's what we do. Um, and 
just absolutely love doing it. Um, about six months ago, I had an opportunity to go to, a, in our same VA system, uh, a residential PTSD program. I'm sorry, residential alcohol and drug treatment program. Mm -hmm. um, 30-day stay. Uh, and guess what? About half the people who show up there have PTSD. Right. So one of the one of the ways that we deal with PTSD is, and we'll talk, I think, a lot today about avoidance. And that's, that's the buzzword that I use. Uh, I'll tell my interns or my patients, uh, I said, if, if I ever ask a question and you don't know the answer, just say avoidance because nine times out of 10, oh, there you <laughs> PTSD, go. That's, that's what it is. Right. So tell us, for those of us that, or, or for those that are listening or watching that have no idea, I, I don't know how this could be possible, but what exactly is PTSD and how does it affect veterans different than that of civilians? Is there a way to to separate the two or is it is it kind of the same for both? Well, let's start with what it is. Okay. okay? And, and I, I, I hear people say a lot about, oh, I, I've, I have trauma. It's, it's pretty specific what the definition is. I mean, couldn't we all say that we have trauma? And, and it depends on how you how you define it, right? right? So, again, post traumatic stress disorder, post after trauma, stress disorder. Um, so, in order to have PTSD, you absolutely positively have to have a traumatic event. And what does that mean? By definition, from the DSM five Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it is the the publication that the American Psychiatric Association puts out to define what different diagnoses are. So, direct exposure to uh, actual death, physical injury, or the extreme threat of death or physical injury. So, um, recently I had somebody come into my office and say, I have trauma, uh, my grandma died. And, and I said, well, tell me about that. Well, she was 88 years old and had cancer and she died. And although that's tragic, that doesn't meet the definition of, of right. trauma for PTSD. So um, of course, when we're talking about veterans, oftentimes we think about combat, but not all veterans who have PTSD are combat related. Right, right. It can be something we call military sexual trauma, or MST. It can be a training accident. It can be an automobile accident while you're in service. It can be um, um, a physical assault or sexual assault that happened off post, for example. But, right. but if we're talking about trauma, it's, you know, it could be physical abuse, it could be rape, uh, automobile accidents, natural disasters, uh, of course, combat. Um, so that's the that's the the thing you have to have. Uh, now, one of the things that we tweaked in DSM five that was really helpful is um, you cannot have trauma from watching television. Right. That's not that's not trauma. Unless, for example, your job is 
as a social worker or an investigator to be watching um, crime scenes or you're investigating um, child abuse or uh, those sorts of things. Um, There are jobs in the military after a after an incident where they where they sweep the area and the the job is to pick up remnants, not only of materials but of bodies. So you may have been training alongside these folks, um, closer to them than you are your your blood family. And there's an explosion, and my job is now to come in and start picking up fingers and body parts. And, and uh, uh, in previous diagnostic manuals, that was not covered. But um, so EMTs, police officers, ambulance workers, uh, uh, that kind of direct exposure over and over again certainly fits. Even though it's not direct exposure to the threat or the violence or the physical harm. Right. Just there's a, is there a third, there's a third. Well, there's, there is a piece in there that says if you find out that you're, that someone has been murdered or killed um, and it is a close family member or a very, very close friend and you're given all the details about it. That's one of the new things that has been added to the, the diagnostic criteria. So first of all, we have trauma. Right? Then the next category we go to are what we call the reliving symptoms or re-experiencing symptoms. Recurring intrusive thoughts. Can you give us some examples of those? Sure. And, and not just... So recurring intrusive thoughts. Um... um I'm driving down the road, and I, I'm a combat veteran. I'm driving down the road, and I see a bag of trash on the side of the road, or I see an old refrigerator on the side of the road. And that triggers a memory of, because in Iraq and Afghanistan, roadside bombs, IEDs, Everywhere. were planted in things on the side of the road, dead animals on the side of the road. So seeing a... a a bag of trash on the side of the road might trigger the memory of when my friend was blown up or shot. And it's not only remembering it, it's, it, it's like that bad song you hear on the radio that you don't like, but you sing it all day long, right? Uh, if people are out there old enough to remember eight-track tapes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they never stopped, right? They'd get to the end, it would just start all over again. Right. So, um so it's not that I'm remembering it. I'm remembering the event, and I can't get it out of my head. You're reliving it. You're, you're reliving it. Um, so th- one of the other re-experiencing symptoms is what we call flashback. Let me back up one. So in recurring intrusive thoughts, the next one we would think about are nightmares. And that's... Um, very, very common. If we have time at the end or some part, I'd like to talk about sleep apnea and PTSD. Uh, Absolutely. So nightmares are, ap- everybody knows what a nightmare is. I hear people use the word flashback a lot, incorrectly. 
a flashback is a night you you said relive it is not only the memory of it but I'm reliving it I'm I'm in the moment I'm smelling the smells I'm hearing the sounds um they're not hallucinating but the memory is so intense that and I'll I've had wives or family members call sometime and say he was doing a low crawl through the dining room last night or he was walking walking point last night on our property um so it's not just remembering flashback is very very intense very very frightening uh because you can't wake up from it you eventually get snapped out of it um so recurring intrusive thoughts flashback nightmares uh, when I'm thinking about it, I'm feeling anxious and, dist- and di- distressed. My heart's beating. My stomach has got butterflies. I'm sweating. And, and, and experiencing a sense of panic or distress or fear or terror. And I think that's a key, a key piece there because at some point through treatment, very effective treatment, mind you, I can have the thought without the distress. See, right now, we have the, the memory, and we have the distress, and those things are linked together. Um, what, what is the uh, evolutionary benefit to these things? Like, how did, and this may be supposition that I'm asking you for, what, why do we have this? Why is this a component of the human condition. Like I get kind of that shame and guilt can have some benefit. We can want to avoid the things in the future that might make us feel Mm -hmm. those things. It something of a behavior modification is the ultimate impetus here. Yeah. Is the body trying to protect us? Yeah. is, Is this the mind's way of keeping the person from ever engaging in those things again? I think part of it is what we call the the fight flight freeze response. Sure. You get stuck, you know, you get you know, the reptile reptilian brain, you know, when so there's two parts of the, the brain that are there more than that, but let's keep it simple. I think of it like a seesaw. The reptilian brain is at the very base of the brain, and it's called the reptile brain because that's all they have. And what do they need to survive? You know, eat, sleep, don't get eaten. Um reproduce so if if uh uh, and the other part of the brain is the prefrontal cortex the big part of the brain over the eyes that's where language and problem solving come in higher executive functions right so if you think about it just like a seesaw or a switch on switch off if someone were to to crash through the door in a car we would immediately, we'd stop thinking and we would start reacting. We'd, sur- we'd go into survival mode. And when survival mode kicks on, the front part of the brain where reasoning and logic comes from goes off. Every power, time without fail. Pa- power down those systems, power up the reactionary We could system. be very, very hungry. We could be really hungry and talking about where we're going to go eat right after this. And my stomach's growling and I'm hungry. But that car come, comes through the wall, I'm not hungry anymore. Right. All systems, all non-essential systems shut down. It's kind of like Star Trek. More, more power to the shields. Right, right. You run fighter freeze. So what happens is after the threat is over, reptilian brain goes off, this comes back online, 
the reasoning part of our brain. And then we start doing the woulda, shoulda, couldas. You know, if I, if I hadn't stopped for coffee, I wouldn't have been there at that exact time and it wouldn't have happened. Um, uh, if I had chosen another day to come, you know, we start doing those woulda, shoulda, couldas because why do we do that? We want to make sense of the world. We're trying to figure things out. And that's a deep ingrained desire that we have, right? We I want mean, it's resolution. Just, right. We want resolution, you know. So back to your question, it's a really good one. Not everybody who experiences trauma develops PTSD. In fact, it's about 30%. I was going to ask that. I mean, one man's uh, discomfort is another man's uh, uh, nightmare trauma. from which you can't wake up. I mean, right. it's... and, and it, an interesting thing, I've treated three different people that were in the same trauma. and The, the same event? The exact same event. They were there at the, same, at the exact same time. Very different, very different experiences. Uh, and in fact, there were many other people there that did not develop PTSD. So why do some people develop PTSD and some people don't? What, what is the answer to that? Yeah. The answer is that there's many, there's several factors. Uh, but the short answer is some people get stuck in that moment for whatever reason. Uh, it could be that they had prior trauma or, or a history of unsafe environment where they were always on guard. Where there was, and this was just the thing that, that triggered it, right. pushed them over the top. Um, and I, I wish I had numbers on this, but many of the people who develop PTSD from, from combat, pardon me, had a, had a rough childhood, had some sort of abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, or, so you or neglect in childhood. So you think that early childhood discord can be a priming factor for can be. PTSD? Can okay. be. It can also, Is there a way to predict it, that? It can, also, it can also harden you or toughen you Right, where it's not traumatizing. It's just like, this is another day. You're anesthetized to yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that, and maybe I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but uh, in treatment, there's particularly, uh, there's two treatments that I use, uh, cognitive processing therapy or CPT, and the other is prolonged exposure therapy or PE. The, the, the language we use is to help get you unstuck. That this is not a, a condition uh, it, it's kind of like in, in, in addiction. You say, you're not, you're not a bad person. You're a sick person. You need to get well. Yeah. And you're stuck in those ruts Yeah, and you so, need somebody to pull you out of those ruts. Get out of those things. Yeah. And one of the things that keeps you in the rut are the things we tell ourselves with the, the executive functioning, the higher part of our brain that says, would have, could have, should have. If I had done this instead of that, Joey wouldn't have got killed. If I had not gone to that party, I wouldn't have got raped. If I had not worn that skirt, so that trying, we were trying to make sense of the world. Yeah, uh, and, <clears throat> and I'll I'll tell you, trying story. to find binary answers to things. Very yes, very no, very clearly delineated. You know who who shoulders the responsibility. That kind of clarity in a you know in a world that's just necessarily not that way it's a it's a it's a natural response to an unnatural thing 
or it's a it's a it's a normal response the the fight flight freeze the the, the feeling threatened the terror the horror to something that's that most people don't experience right if if you had an opportunity to speak to all new soldiers pre exposure to anything that could remotely produce trauma like you're the boot camp guy do you think foreknowledge of these things could lessen the frequency with which people uh, have PTSD? I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I, I don't know. Uh, I think one of the things we, we could do is to encourage that when something happens, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. It's so interesting a, to me. As opposed to... You know, we're Ignore not going to talk about this. Stuff it. Right? I mean, it, there is magic to having somebody sit down and recall the awful event. Like, the more you do it, the more you do it, the more you do it, it has less power over you. Yeah. yeah. Let me get back to the, the diagnostic sorry, criteria. Sorry. No, yes. no, no, please. I, no, no, because I, I love talking about treatment. I love treatment. Uh, so we, we, we'll had get the, there. we had the, We had trauma. We had the re-experiencing symptoms, nightmares, recurring intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, feeling distressed. The next two we talk about are avoidance. Do you avoid thinking about it or talking about it? Do you avoid places that might remind you of it? Uh, do you avoid movies, television shows, etc.? Avoidance is the, is the booger. Avoidance helps us feel comfortable in the moment, but in the long run, it makes my PTSD worse. Um, and I, so let me get back to the criteria. The next five or six are things like, do you blame yourself? Do you feel depressed? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel emotionally um, uh, distraught? Do you, um, uh, do you isolate? Do you um, uh, have trouble... Uh, connecting with people? Do you feel uh, isolated? The last section uh, are what we call the hyperarousal cluster. Trouble sleeping? Trouble. Now, I think about it this way your engine is idling at 4,500 RPM. So if you start your lawnmower and it's idling at 4,500 RPM, you can hear it, you can feel it. It's going to run through gasoline faster than if it's idling at 1,000 RPM. It's going to go through parts more quickly idling at 4,500 RPM. Just sitting still. So I think about that's how PTSD works on the body, right? So trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, irritable mood, angry outbursts, uh, uh, hypervigilant. My neck's on a swivel. My head's on a swivel is what I hear a lot. Uh, and easily startled. So grandpa goes to a um, uh, birthday party for the, for the four-year-old. And they're outside and they're having cake and ice cream and balloons. And some, somebody says, let's pop a balloon. Uh-oh. Or they just accidentally pop a balloon. And grandpa hits the ground. I mean... On his belly, on the ground. What's the reaction? 
people laugh. Yeah. He's terrified. Even if it's just for a moment. And people are laughing. What is that due to self-esteem? What is that due to self-image? What is that due to self-efficacy? So Grandpa goes to the car and goes home. If he goes to the party at all, right, he's never going to go to another one. And he's probably going to drink too much. And he may have had a couple pops before he went to the party. Right. Um, one of the stories I, I, I like to, you know, I get asked to do little talks to church groups or civic groups. Imagine, uh, and, and I'll do this during an intake interview with a veteran, particularly my Vietnam veterans. I love those guys. Uh, I love them all. But um, I'll say, you know, how, during their, their first session with me, I was like, um, tell me about the grocery store. They look at me like, there's groceries. What do, you want, <laughs> what do you want to know? I'm like, well, do you ever go? Uh, rarely. My wife does all that. Okay, you're on the way home from the appointment today, and you get a phone call from your wife and says, we need a gallon of milk. I'm cooking something. I need a gallon of milk. You go. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, maybe. So where's the milk in the store? It's in the back. So if I'm nervous and I'm anxious and I'm tense and I'm angry at the world uh, and I, I walk in the store and I'm anxious, I just start picking up stuff. And I'll ask, do you ever get a basket, a big basket? Oh, heck no. Well, how about a hand basket? Mm, rarely. In other words, I'm going to go in and whatever I can fill in my hands, it's time to go. So I go in and I'm walking to the back of the store and I see some cookies I like and I see some chips I like and I got to, and all of a sudden my hands are full. It's like, oh, it's time to go to the, the register. And the register is the worst part because I hate being here. I feel threatened in this place. And I can see the door and you have coupons and it's killing me. I'm in the express line that has 20, it says a sign, 15 items or less. And you have 23 items, I'm certain, because I've counted them 50 <laughs> times. And you're keeping me from the door. And I'll say, you ever left your stuff and gone home? Oh. I said, are you following me around, Doc? Oh, or you're halfway home and you realize, I didn't get the milk. I forgot the milk, yeah. I didn't get the milk. I said, would you rather go back to the store and get the milk or get home, go home and take a butt chewing? I said, butt chewing every time. What's life like if you can't go get milk? Think about that. Or are you going to stop at the dollar store and pay three times the amount? But something as simple as being able to go and get a gallon of milk becomes a monumental task. And how debilitating that is. It, 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 so how do we handle that? How do, how do, if what's, I'm, what's the solution? In the, that's a really good question. What is? Well, the solution is that there are, there are 
evidence-based psychotherapies. If you read in the literature, EBPs, evidence-based psychotherapy, what does that mean? They have done numerous studies to show that these particular therapies are effective in treating PTSD. Um, Real quick, yeah. How do you deal? How do you deal with the stigma? I mean, these veterans, they're man's man, right? They're strong. They're warriors. They're, um, you know, they're they've been through hell and back to protect us, mm-hmm. right? So, the last thing they want to do is admit that they're weak and or admit anything that could possibly lead them to believing that they're weak in any way, shape, or form. So, how do you get past that stigma? Do they just get to a point where they're they they don't have any other options, or are some is is PTSD becoming more uh, kind of accepted in the world, and and they're they're more open to seeking treatment for this? I, I, I think both of those things, Danny. I think there there's still some stigma out there, but um, it's far less today than it was you know, 20 years back. Um, you know, when I was in the PTSD clinic 15, between, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was seeing more Vietnam veterans and fewer OIF, OEF veterans, mm-hmm. Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. And that has kind of transitioned over the last, you know, five, six, seven years. Uh, but it, it, I love that you use the word weak it's not a matter of weak or strong. It's a matter of this terrible thing happened and I'm stuck. Not because of morals, not because of values, not because of work ethic. It's because I'm stuck. Um, and as we said earlier, you know, about not everybody that, that, that goes through trauma develops PTSD. It's about 25, 30%. Uh, in certain populations, it's higher. Rape survivors have a much higher percentage of developing PTSD than someone who uh, witnessed a car crash, for example. And that kind of makes intuitive sense that if it's attack on body, if it's bodily right. um, attack or, or a violation, then... Uh, uh, but um, how do we get through it? I think... One, there may be something in their life that says, I've been putting everything off, but this thing is coming up. My grandson's graduation. My daughter is on homecoming court, and she wants me to walk her on the football field at homecoming. You know, there may be some event, some incident that's coming up that they really want to do. Um, so that might be motivation to come in. Uh, it might be that they've lost another job, another wife, another DWI, another whatever. And, you know, people are saying, you know, it's kind of like there's some really nice parallels to recovery from substance abuse. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, people said for years, hey, man, why don't you go get some help? Maybe you need to cut back. Maybe you need to do this. Maybe So pointing out that there's problems. um, guy told me this week, he said, you know, my, my family has, uh, uh, they, we've orchestrated how we eat based on my drinking or my angry outbursts. Uh, 
he has PTSD and is alcoholic. Uh, so um, there was an event in his life that, that, you know, it was like, okay, enough's enough. So it may be that something, uh, something brought him in. It might be that someone said, hey, you know, uh, you can get a service-connected disability and, and get some payment for this or help with your medical bills for this. Uh, so it might be a financial uh, incentive. incentive. Yeah, I just, I, 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 I think that the, the the term PTSD is becoming. I mean, I'm I'm hearing it more and more and more. But one thing that, and, and I I keep going back to this is the, and I know you said it's not a weakness. It's not, but I mean, I. I'm I'm gonna be a little vulnerable here. Like I'm, it's it's difficult for me to admit when I'm scared or mm -hmm. when I'm insecure or when I'm uh, threatened, threatened or feeling having feelings of abandonment. I mean, it's 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 hard. It's it's really really hard. So, you know what else is hard? Yeah. What living like that? Living that way. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. So I. I People will say all the time, you want me to come in here and talk about this most awful thing or numerous things. That I, I, I've been doing that for years. I've been thinking about this for years. What good is it going to do coming in and talking to you? So what is the carrot you dangle in front of them that if they do this work, they will experience, they they quite possibly may experience some relief. Yeah, and in, in, a, in a therapeutic manner to say, well, how's that working for you? Yeah. Uh, this is the word, this is the, the way I uh, phrase it. He said, if you could have gotten out of this box by yourself, you'd have done it a long time ago. Great parallels with, and actually we talk about PTSD as recovery. It's a recovery model. Not a cure model, because some people come in kind of angry. Well, you, you can't cure PTSD. Well, you're right. You're absolutely right. But it's it's being stuck uh, cognitively and emotionally. Uh, so if you could have done this by yourself, you'd have done it a long time ago. You didn't have the tools or the skills. I said, We've got the tools and the skills. Let's go on this journey together. You mentioned that uh, rape survivors have a higher incidence of developing PTSD. If you could break down the traumas into certain categories, like uh, witnessing your friends injured in an IED explosion, being threatened by an enemy combatant, point blank, rape, I don't know how many different categories of trauma we could kind of tease out who has the, who, who has the tougher time getting to relief? Is there, is there a, is there a I, rank of I, the traumas? I'm sure I would think there's data out there just to, to clarify that offhand. I, I don't know. Yeah. My next question is, there's so much sexual assault in the military that there's an acronym for it. Yes. 
What, what are they do? They're raping each other. I mean, well, th these are these are American force members that are assaulted by other. Right. There's an acronym for it. MST. How often is this happening? A lot, a lot more frequently than you would want to know. And it's um, is that alarming or what? Yes. I mean, I'm and and, and here's the kicker with that. These are my own people. Right. This isn't the enemy. These are my own people. And it, it's... Um, are they up higher-ranking people that, uh, doing this to lower-ranking people? That's some of it. Um, that they have that, that position of power over. Uh, it's mostly male-on-male. Male-on-male? Um, male? Mostly. What? Yeah. And, and oftentimes... Uh, I say oftentimes... Sometimes it's um, a gang rape. Um, um, sometimes it's position of authority. Uh, and, and you may be surprised about this, but there are, there are times where the, the person in authority is female and the, the subordinate is male. And that's taken advantage of. I'm surprised by all of it. Yeah, it, I mean, it it's, it goes so much deeper than than what I thought. I I I'm I, I'm very curious about with with drugs and alcohol. It's a family disease, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is affected, even though you try to keep it localized to just me, right? The whole family is affected. I'm curious how do how do loved ones and uh, people that are close to those that are affected with PTSD, whether they're in treatment or not, how do they best a get support for for what they're going through? Are there support networks, mm -hmm. and and what is the best way to help their loved ones that are affected with PTSD? You know, is there a is there a, a a box to check, or is it? It's a different. Lot, it's a lot like Al-Anon. Yeah. You know, they got to take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, um, and, in, you know, they can encourage the, the person, whether it's a service member or a civilian, to, to get help uh, because there is absolutely help. Um, and, I, and I want to tell you that a prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, EMDR, are, are methods that we're using every day in the VA that um, um, just the results are, are miraculous. I was going to ask you about EMDR next. Yeah. That seems like the ultimate brain hack to me. Well, and I can't speak to it. Um, I'm not trained in it. Uh, a dear friend and colleague of mine, uh, Dana Rippey, is, is trained in it. And, again, marvelous work. Um, there's a similar thing called tapping uh, that uh, – uh, a colleague in New Orleans, um, she's civilian, uh, has been pushing me for 20 years. Kelly, you got to try this. You got to try this. You got to try this. Um, one back to the hook. Mm -hmm. I like to use, particularly if I'm working with veterans, uh, is to use language that they understand. So I'll say, you know, when you go back to the so. Prolonged exposure therapy is once a week for 10 weeks. 
Now, that, that's a generalization. You can do it in a much shorter time. But it was written to be once a week for 10 weeks. Cognitive processing therapy, or CPT, once a week for 12 weeks. And people look at you like, wait a minute. I've been struggling with this for 40 years or 50 years or six months, a year. And you're telling me in 10 weeks I'm going to feel better? It's possible. Um, so in each of these therapies, they're asked to do pr daily practice assignments between sessions. What, what do those assignments look like? Well, for— Are they designed to— to stimulate the mind, or what, what, are, what well, are we looking at here? And I'll tell you, PE and CPT use different mechanisms to get to the same point. Uh -huh. uh, prolonged exposure therapy is an exposure therapy, and I can go a little bit into that. Um, cognitive processing therapy, you don't spend a whole lot of time, you don't spend time talking about the details of the trauma. You talk about your your reactions to the trauma, your self-talk to the about the trauma. And I'll give you an example in a second. Prolonged exposure therapy, like I said, so um, do, you, do you like scary movies? Like horror movies? Yeah. Yes. I don't like them at all. <laughs> but do you like them for the same reason I don't like them? Right. You get jacked up, right? So if we were to, you know, put the big screen TV on in here, turn out all the lights, and together watch a scary movie together, the first time we watch it, what happens to our, our fear level? Right. Same time, same place tomorrow, same movie. What happens to our fear level tomorrow? It's diminished a bit. A little. What, what, what's today? So Tuesday, same time, same place, same movie. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. By the time we get to next Sunday... Has the content of the movie changed? No. What has changed is my reaction to the to the movie. And what I'll tell, I'll, I'll give that example to my veterans, and I'll tell them, look, I know that what happened to you was very real, and not a movie. But it's a movie in your head, and it keeps playing over and over. And when we get to the scary parts, we try to turn the channel. We try to change the channel so we don't experience it. So drugs, alcohol, work, extra job, extra shifts. Um, sex. Sex. Uh, work, work, work. You know, whatever it is I can do to avoid thinking about it, right? So if we, if we pull over and we together sit down and have you talk about it, and there's a fancy app called PE Coach 2, uh, and we record it on the app and have you go home every day and listen to it every day. And I'm giving you a, a watered-down version sure. of it. We go, But the idea is that if you go home and listen to it every day, each time you listen to it, it loses its grip. At the end of 10 weeks, does the event change? No. My friend was still killed by an IED. My friend was still killed by a can, sniper. Can you only treat one particular trauma at a time? Great question. If I have multiple traumas, we pick the bugaboo. The one that's the, the pick worst? Pick the worst one. 30, 40 years ago, we'd start with the little one, 
and work up, it would take so long. You start with the big one, knock it out. Big fancy word is it generalizes. It becomes easier to treat the other ones. You don't have to. They resolve. The applications, the same, I see. We, the word is habituation. So in prolonged exposure therapy, the mechanism for change is habituation. Habituate means I get used to it. There's a rattle in my car. I get in it. The first three minutes I'm in my car, it drives me cuckoo. And halfway to work, I don't notice it anymore. The rattle is still there. It's just not in the forefront. Another piece of prolonged exposure therapy is what we call in-life exposure. So I sit down with, with the veteran, and we make a list of things he, he does. Sometimes that list is pretty short. <laughs> but our list of things that you used to do, you used to enjoy. Uh, and we rank order them from things that are calm and relaxing to things that are a little uncomfortable, moderately uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, Oh, heck no. Ain't no way. Right. And guess what's on that one? Walmart is always like way up here, right? Mm -hmm. And what we do is we say, okay, week one, pick one thing on your list. Go out and do that one thing for at least 30 minutes until your anxiety peaks and passes. That reptilian brain we talked about earlier, you know, so... If I go into a situation like McDonald's, 10 o'clock in the morning, and I go sit down, my anxiety goes up. Usually when my anxiety is up, what do I do? I leave. What gets rewarded in my brain is leaving. And over the course of months and years, my circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And boy, when people retire in particular, their symptoms go through the roof. Yeah, because they're isolated. There's, there's they, no more... There's no distraction. There's no more avoidance. Right. It's like I've got four gardens and I'm, you know, doing all this stuff and I just... So, um, so this was a particular case. He was a Vietnam veteran. He had retired. Six months after retirement, his wife said, you go get help or I'm leaving. Um. Because the nightmares increase, the anxiety increase, the anger, the irritability, the everything, you know. And he just sat there watching the news all day long, getting madder and madder at the same story that right. came, right? Um, so, first week of 10 weeks, actually it's the second week, go to McDonald's, 10 o'clock in the morning. He picked McDonald's. Why do you think he picked 10 o'clock? Nobody there. Right. Not the breakfast rush, not the lunch rush. He went in, got a cup of coffee, sat in the corner. His anxiety went, shoop. See, our anxiety oftentimes with PTSD goes up like a bottle rocket. It comes down like a parachute. Goes up like a bottle rocket. Comes down like a parachute. We usually don't stay there long enough to let it come down like a parachute. So if I leave, said, so this is crazy. People are stupid. I hate everybody. Everybody's an asshole. I leave, and on my way home, my anxiety starts to come down. But if you stay, the anxiety eventually comes down on its own, habituation. And if I do that every day for a week, six days between sessions, guess what happens to my anxiety score each, each time? It gets smaller and smaller. And it may just be 
like on a scale of one to a hundred, maybe three points, five points. But that's something. And that's progress. That's something. And we have them write it down because I want them to see and I'll chart it. Um, I give a, a questionnaire, two questionnaires at the beginning of each session. And I'll score it, graph it, and show it to them. Because I want them to see that you, you have a five-point drop this week. Or even you had a one-point drop. We're going to celebrate that. That's moving in the right direction. That's moving in the right direction. So in vivo exposure. So at, at some point, 10 o'clock in the morning, like within a week, within 10 days, 10 o'clock in the morning got boring for him. So he moved it to 1030. And then over the course of ten, you know, nine weeks, moved it to 11. And then he got out of the corner. He was sitting in different places. People with PTSD like to sit in the corner facing the door with a wall behind them. They don't want to, if you sit them in the middle of the restaurant, nope. I'm either going to ask for another, wait for another table or pick a fight with my wife so we can go home. So by the end of the 10 weeks, he was able to sit in the middle of the restaurant with his back turned to where everybody orders at noon and be comfortable. And I'll tell that story at session one or in the intake and their eyes get really like, and I said, you're not going to believe this because it's like telling a six-year-old you can do algebra. I mean, they're like, right. I don't do that. I've been trying this. I've, I've been dealing with this for years and years and, and years. Said, Just trust me. This is a real guy. This is a real Vietnam veteran. This is real. Uh, and, and his, 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 so the, in vivo exposure, go out and do something every day. Imaginal exposure, using your imagination, listening to that every day. Back to the terminology of, of military. What I'll say is, when think back to boot camp or basic training. One's Army, one's Marines. The first time they gave you a weapon, said take it apart and put it back together, how long did it take you? And you usually get a laugh like, I don't think I ever got the darn thing back together, right? How about at the end of boot camp? How long did it take you? And well, they'll snap to and say, you know, like less than a minute or 40, you know, 75 seconds. And how did you get from point A to point Z? You practiced. Practiced. How often did you practice? Every day. Every day. Sometimes multiple times a day? Yes. It got to the point where it became second nature. I didn't have to think about it. Why did they want you that familiar with that tool? Was it just a, a, a hoop to jump through to get out of basic training or, or, or boot camp? And they'll go, what do you mean? Why do they want you that familiar with this tool? It can be a matter of life and death, yes. Where? In basic training? Well, no. Out in the real world. Yeah. Out there. Now point out the window. You want it to be a big, and, and they'll say, my life depended on it and the life of my buddies depended on it. So they wanted you that familiar with that tool. So if you used it every, if you practiced it every day, and if we brought one in right now, it may have been a few years since you've done it, but within an hour, you'd be back to, right? That's what we do in PTSD treatment. We give you some tools that at first you think are stupid. How is this ever going to work? Trust the process. And by the end of the 10 weeks... You can do it with your eyes closed if you've practiced every day, right? And I'll tell you a little something. Once a week for 10 weeks, 
a lot of times you get to session five, six, seven, and they're like, do we have to keep doing this? This is getting boring. To which your response is? Let's finish it. Let's put the fire out. Well, it depends. If someone's truly, if I've got the clinical sense that it, it's truly put to bed, the fire is all the way, you know, your campfire, make sure it's all the way out. Right. Otherwise, it can flame back up. And sometimes I'm like, let's finish it. Um, and it's hard work. It's hard work. Particularly those first four sessions, hard work. But living with PTSD is hard work. It's, you know, idling at 4,500 RPM is hard work. Having trouble, you know, I haven't taken my wife out to dinner for our anniversary in years. It, wouldn't it be nice to take her to dinner? Wouldn't it be nice to go to your mama's for, for, for Thanksgiving dinner? You've been telling her for the last 10 years, I don't want to go because Uncle Joe's a jerk or because my brother this. or that. Wouldn't it be nice for, to have, sit at your mama's table again? You mentioned the, the idling it. I'm a very uh, photos and, and illustrations mean a lot to me, and, and that's how I learn generally. You mentioned the 4,500 RPM. Do these men and women who are idling at 4,500, do they become so conditioned to that level of stimulation that they are somewhat okay with that? And how do you break that, that no, this is not normal? That's normal. Yeah, right. This feels normal. It can be a thousand. If, if, if I'm at, at 2,500, what's wrong? It's kind of like getting sober. Mm -hmm. What, there's not chaos in my life? Let me stir some up, right? <laughs> yes. Exactly. I mean, it's, that's... <laughs> well, I'm not used to this peace and calm stuff. Let's. Uh, peace can be terrifying. It can. Unless you have some tools. Right. To deal with it, you were talking earlier. It's like, yeah, I don't, I, don't I, I get fearful. I get this. You also have a program to help inventory that and say why, and a and a pretty robust toolkit to to, yeah. to tap into. I've got lots of tools, but boy, I like my cordless drill. Mm -hmm. uh, what I had a professor at, at Southern Miss that, that said, you know, if all I have is a hammer, everything, everything becomes a nail. Yeah, and if I need to adjust my glasses. Uh, a hammer is nice to work on, on, on carpentry, but I'm going to make a mess of things, right? So our goal with PTSD treatment is to put some more tools in your tool belt, have you practice them every day. And if you do, it, it, your, life, your quality of life will improve. Sleep better, better mood, better concentration, not so exhausted at the end of the day. And if you like visuals, one of the things I'll say sometimes is if you start every day with a full tank of gas, at the end of the day, if your tank is empty, how much, and we, we don't know, but theoretically, I'll ask a person, how much of your tank are you using to contain your PTSD or your addiction? And let's say, let's, theoretically, it's, it's 30%. It may be much more than that. It may be less than that. But let's say, just for the sake of discussion, it's 30%. We treat your PTSD, and all of a sudden, you've got 30% more fuel in your tank. What are you going to do with that? 
kind of back to your question about this yeah. peace thing. Oh, I might start sponsoring people. I might go to my grandson's games. I might actually do a garden instead of fussing about doing a garden. Uh, I might volunteer at church. I might go to church. I might um, join the VFW. I might. So <clears throat> it's a gift. I get to. I get more fuel in my tank. To go do things that maybe I've, I've put off for a long time or things I didn't even know about. Right. Cognitive processing therapy or CPT is another one. Uh, now, it gets to the same point through a different mechanism. I'll tell you a story. There, there was a, I'm a, I like stories. So, I like stories. And I, that, I, that's how I sell it to my, to my people. You're selling it to me. I'm feeling good. Uh, <laughs> I'm enjoying listening to your stories. I had a Vietnam veteran from South Louisiana drafted for the Vietnam War, went to basic training, AIT, advanced infantry training, um, goes to Vietnam, uh, two weeks in country, first time outside the wire, first time on patrol. It was Christmas Eve. They weren't supposed to have any action. They get into an extended battle. The guy right next to him gets shot in the chest. I mean, early on, boom. He did not freak out. He wasn't fight, flight, freeze. He said, man, I, I went to him. I patched, the, they call it a sucking chest wound because if the lung is punctured and they breathe in, there's a suction sound that makes it. So he, I patched the chest wound. We got the guy out on a litter, medevaced out. Found out later that night, the fellow died. Someone said, Oh, by the way, there was an exit wound. And for 43 years, he thought, if I just checked for an exit wound, my friend would still be alive. In other words... I killed him. I killed my friend. And talk about guilt and shame, right? So, CPT, one of the cool things about it is it can be done individually or it can be done in group. And this particular fellow was in a group, half OIF, OEF veterans, half uh, Vietnam veterans. Is either way more or less effective, or are they both about the same? Individuals more effective, mm -hmm. uh, research has shown. Uh, and in, in more recent years, this therapy, both of these therapies can be done on what we call VVC, video conferencing, telehealth. Tele mm -hmm. um, um, but good question. Individual is a little more effective because in a group you can avoid. Right. You can hide a little easier. But so the, the, the whole point of cognitive processing therapy, cognitive is a big fancy word for thinking. Cognitive process. We look at it. We chew on it. Uh, so the first thing is to identify particular thoughts and ask, is this thought helpful or not? Is it realistic or not? So his belief for 43 years, oh, by the way, three marriages, three divorces, couldn't, he, had, he was self-employed because he got fired from so many jobs right. because of his angry, angry, angry outburst. Um, so the, other, the younger veterans really did a nice job at the whole point of cognitive processing therapy. Let's identify a thought and let's teach you some skills to process it or to, to question it. Because my belief may be keeping me stuck. So 
just the three of us sitting here, do you think my patient was to blame for his friend's death? Absolutely not. You can see that that quick. When you're the one, it's harder to see. So people were asking him, you know, you were in country two weeks. This was your first time in combat. If you had been in combat for two or three months, would you have handled the situation differently? He said, no, I didn't freak out. I, I, I went, he said, right. But with three months experience, would you have handled the situation? He said, well, yeah, I, I can see him like it was yesterday. This has been almost 15 years ago. He sat up straight. He said, I would have known better what to do. Ah. So at the moment, you did what you, what you, what you, you reacted to a horrible situation on the skills that you were given. You'd never seen somebody shot before. You didn't know about exit wounds. And, and then someone said, oh, by the way, why didn't you roll him over? He said, I'm thinking it's like John Wayne movies, right? He's on his knees over the guy working on him. He said, no, 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 no. Bullets were coming over our head, you know, this high over our head. We were behind this, this obstruction, and, and people were, well, how did you patch a chest wound? He said, the guy was on his back, and I was laying on my belly, patching the chest wound. Oh. So you never got a chance to look over him and roll him over. He said, no, if we'd done that, we'd have gotten shot. Oh. There's one fellow in the group, it was a medic. He said, dude, combat medic. He said, I've seen, this is where I learned the term sucking chest wound. He said, I've seen a lot of sucking chest wounds. You could have patched the front, patched the back, had a surgeon on hand, and your friend probably would have died anyway. Never forget this. He went, huh. I never thought of that before. That's the perfect CPT answer. I never, cognitive, I never thought of that before. But you know, like sometimes you say something to your dog and he goes, hmm? Mm -hmm. That's what he did. He went, huh, I never thought of that before. Did healing begin at that moment? Oh, yeah, yeah. And ultimately, who, who killed his friend? The enemy. The person who pulled the trigger. Yeah. We can all see that. When you're the one... In the chair, it's hard to see. And, and through some questions, people were pressing, who killed your friend? And someone gestured like this. He went, oh, hmm. Huh. I never thought of that before. And it clicked. And this was a guy, look, not a hair out of place. His blue jeans were starched down the middle. In control. Everything was orderly. He left that day smiling, happy. I'd never seen him joyous. This was his happy face. You know? and, and it was like, wow, this was great. And he came back the next week, and I was expecting more of the same. How do you think he presented the next week? I'm curious. I don't know. Sad. He was so depressed. He came in. His affect was sad. He, his, his posture was down. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I broke him. What did I do wrong? But think about this. 
For 43 years, he was stuck in guilt, which is a manufactured emotion. In other words, guilt we create by telling ourselves something thing. If I had just rolled him over, if I just checked for an exit wound, my friend would still be alive. Therefore, it's my fault. And guilt came from the belief that he was at fault. When that was resolved, grief came up. He never grieved the loss of his friend. And that's a natural emotion. We all grieve. I've had pets grieve. How much brain power had been used since that experience happened with this guy? 43 years. 43 three years. Marriages. Suppressing all of that and not, not experiencing grief until 43 years afterwards. And so he grieved for a few weeks, and by the end of it, he was great. And I didn't see him for 10 years. I saw him on the interstate one day. He passed. Had a combat infantry badge in his back window. He was not one of these showy guys that had like yeah, I'm yeah. a veteran, 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 veteran. You know, he had one little combat CIB on the back rear window. Um, he showed up ten years later. His son was about to be deployed, mm -hmm. so all this stuff kind of bubbled up. Right? So back to the the cure thing. We don't cure it, but we treated it. We gave him some tools, and guess what? The ABC worksheets or the, the challenging belief worksheets that we teach not, not only are used on traumas, but on everyday things. An ABC worksheet says, this is the situation you're in. This is your belief. This is your emotion. The emotion that's caused by your belief. So I'm in the grocery store for, in the express lane. 15 items or less. You have 23 items. I'm sure I've counted it three darn times. That's the A. The B is I'm thinking, you stupid idiot. Why the heck are you doing this to me? And the clerk is allowing this tragic thing to happen. They should fire her. And I'm feeling angry. All because of what I'm thinking. I changed my thought. I changed my emotion. And it, some of the funny things, it's like, okay, well, if the person in front of you is a pretty girl, do you, do you handle it? Well, yeah. Why? Because you're telling yourself something different, right? So not only does it help with the trauma, it helps with everyday stuff. It's a personal inventory. Right. It's four and five. It's step 10. So when people come in with, with PTSD and substance use disorders, it's a great mesh. It's a great match because the ABC works or the tools that we teach in, in CPT are personal inventories. Right. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful mix. Uh, so this fellow came in 10 years later. Uh, we did about three or four sessions. Actually, that's when I found out it was Christmas Eve. He hadn't remembered that in the original thing. Um, uh, but, you know, it was fine. I hadn't seen him again. That's awesome. We are about seven minutes over, but I want to, um, I want to give you an opportunity to let people know if they are struggling with trauma, if they're struggling with PTSD, or or they think that they're struggling with PTSD. What is the best 
route to take? Where do they go? Who do they talk to? If you're a veteran, um, uh, veterans and civilians, the VA, the VA, uh, and the, the here at the Jackson VA has got loads of wonderful uh, trained professionals. Um, back to your question, get help. Yeah. Um, um, if you're gonna, if you're in the private sector, if you're a civilian, uh, ask good questions. Uh, there's a resource, uh, www.ptsd.va.gov. <clears throat> Ptsd.va.gov. There's great resources for the vet, for the, the person, the survivor, for family members, for professionals. So even if you're not in the VA system, it's a good tool. Uh, if you're in the private sector, ask good questions. Has the has the therapist been trained in an evidence-based psychotherapy, like prolonged exposure, like cognitive processing, like EMDR, like tapping? If so, be a good customer, be a good consumer. Where were you trained? Where were you trained? Uh, did you do a you know four-hour uh, workshop on the on the computer? Or did you at the go, Ramada? Yeah. <laughs> or did you go through a three-day intensive training? It, here's how we train in VA: you go through a two or three-day or five-day intensive workshop, and there's at least six months of consultation, weekly consultation, where you have to present cases, and you have to say, "Okay, my here's here's my first case, and uh, we're on session such and such, and their scores on the measures are such and such." So. You, you, it's like being back in graduate school. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a, a four hour workshop or something at the Ramada. It's uh, so ask those questions of your private, your private uh, providers. Uh, where were you trained? Uh, how long have you been doing this? Um, what's your success rate? Uh, um, some of that is being a good consumer. Uh, some of that might be avoidance. Oh, I haven't found anybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um there's help on video conferencing now. And that's, that's, you know, the thing now. Uh, so even if you don't have somebody in your particular town, you might be able to do those sessions online. Uh, um, it, it, quality of life is, is, can just blossom. It's just incredible. Uh, for family members, I think... Uh, another, I think another resource out there for, for combat veterans or for uh, are uh, what we call the vet centers. Uh, they're, they're, they're separate from the VA, but they're, they're, they're separate from the VA. So some people don't like to go to the VA. They don't trust the VA. They've had bad experiences. So the vet center might be another, another opportunity. But I think in the last 10, 15 years, there's been such a... Um, an awareness of post-traumatic stress disorder that you'd be hard-pressed not to be able to find somebody uh, in your community or, or in a nearby community. Well, I'm grateful to you for uh, coming and talking Absolutely. with us. Um, You've been endlessly interesting. Yeah, Thank this, you. this means a lot. Uh, and and my, my hope is that someone heard something that they needed to hear today. Um, but uh, yeah, just thank you, You're thank welcome. you for coming. And um, and, and the you know the, when I'm ending a uh, uh, an intake assessment, 
I'll say to the person, if you leave here with nothing else today, I hope you, you leave here with at least this much hope that the quality of your life can get better. Um, and because it is about hope. Like you said in your intro, uh, you don't have it. It's a full-time job to live with this. And it's scary as hell to try to treat it. But it's scary as hell to live with it. Uh, and there's help. Amen. There is help. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, and thank you for giving of your time. Yeah, absolutely. Being it means, willing. It means a tremendous amount. So thank you so much. All right. We will see you guys next week. All right. We're take out. care. Peace.